Welcome to The Gabby Ree Show, where we break down the complex worlds of health, fitness, family, business, and relationships with the world's leading experts. I'm your host, Gabby Reese, and I'm here to simplify these topics and give you practical takeaways that you can start using today. We all know that living a healthy, balanced life isn't always easy. Let's try working on managing life a little better and have some fun along the way. Because after all, life is just one big experiment and we're all doing our best. We are facing a very critical time in humanity where if we don't figure out how to heal more effectively, more efficiently, and really empower each human being on the face of this earth to self-heal, which is what all the Eastern tribal disciplines have always described healing as about, but what even Hippocrates said, healing comes from within the one seeking to be healed, not from the outside, not from the medicine, not from the doctor, comes from within each of us. If we don't empower people to do that relatively soon, we're not only going to run out of money to pay for everybody's healthcare, but we are literally going to destroy ourselves and make a planet that's inhospitable for us. Because, very famous saying, which I'm sure you know, hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And to the contrary, healed people healed people. What the science is telling us, what the the most exciting neuroscience and, and research is telling us from the work of psychedelics and the work we're doing with Apollo is, you can change your future. Mm-hmm. And by, un, by, by being more present, you can change your future. And that is incredibly empowering. At the same time, yeah. it requires the repair of these fractures. It, we cannot heal with a fractured self. We actually have to bandage it and we have to bring, you know, bring the edges together of the wound. We have to, we have to put traction on the bone, make sure we, you know, when we repair a broken bone, you don't just put a cast on right away. You actually make sure it's fit together first and then you put the cast on so it heals properly without as much of a scar. It's no different for emotional wounds. If we don't take care of emotional wounds, we don't, for example, teach people how to grieve loss, Mm. then what happens? You store that loss and you actually resist it. And that causes a tremendous amount of suffering and prolonged pain. So by teaching people some of these skills and helping support each other through the process, which is not something you require me for, that's literally something any human being can do for any other human being, just by being present and listening non-judgmentally to them. You don't need to go to medical school for that part. That helps repair the fracture. Once you repair the fracture, and then you realize, hey, I'm actually more, I feel more whole, and that's the integration work. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is not only a psychiatrist, but also a neuroscientist, Dr. Dave Rabin. And he's done a ton of work with treatment resistance patients. So just people that like nothing was working. He's done a ton of epigenetic studies with controlled psychedelic treatments. And when I say controlled, I mean, this is a very systematic and conservative approach. I think people hear the word psychedelics and they think, oh, okay, they're just, you know, bypassing and it's kind of loosey-goosey. Well, it's really quite the contrary. You know, he even talks about and reminds me that if you and I take a yoga class or go into a very heavy breathing session, this is a psychedelic, can be a psychedelic perspective. So it's mind-changing. And what I really appreciate about Dr. Dave is he's like, listen, I can't heal people. They have to heal themselves, but can we put them in an environment that they have that opportunity, that they get that space, that their brain and their nervous system 
and the amygdala gets to you know calm down because a lot of people are walking around now with chronic stress and so he talks about ways to do that he invented a technological piece called the apollo i've been wearing it for maybe about 10 days now and my sleep did improve and they're using it's very interesting because they're using sound technology to help basically give your nervous system a hug And so his passion for helping people and helping people get that safe feeling, that safety, because what we learn is biologically, that's really what we want and that we're lacking is feeling safe. And he's willing to look at all the ways correctly and measured to do that. And the other thing I I really appreciate is let's say you say, hey, listen, I'm not willing to do a controlled experience or or I, I don't want to wear a wearable. We have so many other things in the conversation that we talk about, just very important reminders about ways that we can help ourselves, calm ourselves down, get that safety feeling in the moment, and also feel good enough so that we can get back to our own empathy, empathy for ourselves and for each other. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Dave Rabin. Dr. Dave Rabin, thank you for coming to my home. I'm so grateful to have you here. Let's just start that you're a neuroscientist and a psychiatrist. I'm, I could barely get through college. How does a person go from, were you first thinking one and then the other, or how does it go that you decide that you're going to do both? That's a great question. And first off, just thank you so much for having me. Mm. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I think My journey originally started in that I always wanted to study consciousness and the way we think about stuff because I had vivid dreams as a kid and I would ask my people and my parents about them and they just gave me the same kind of factory answer like, oh, these are just dreams, they're not real, don't worry about it, but- Like what kind of things showed up in your dreams? That Like even things as simple as like a, I'd be having a conversation with someone like my brother. Mm -hmm. I'd be like six years old, he was two years younger than me. We'd be talking about something or a friend from school and then I'd be hanging out with that person later and I'd reference the conversation and they would have no idea what I was talking about. And I would instantly have the recognition that, oh, you were never actually there. That was in my dream. So then I, as I got older, you know, stressors of life, you start to have mixes of good, bad, sometimes nightmares, bring it up to my parents. And I think it's like a normal, compassionate answer to say to the kids, like the nightmares can't hurt you, they're not real. But it also is not the full story because when you keep having those experiences and they feel real, yeah. it makes you question what what is real. And so I think that kind of inserted that into my brain, that question uh, from a very young age, like maybe six, seven, eight years old, I was sort of thinking about like, what does this word real mean? And then I always wanted to study consciousness and neuroscience research and how we find meaning in things. And I went on high school, my dad, you know, tried to be a good mentor to me. It was like, what do you actually want to do with your life? son. And and I was like, oh, I want to study consciousness and dreams. I love this stuff. And he's like, you know, you'll never make any money doing that, right? And you'll never have job security and you'll have to apply for grants for the rest of your life. And you, you know, it's going to be a really hard life. And I'm like, I never thought about that. He's like, well, you know, what you could do, and my parents are, are both physicians and researchers and and not in that field, but you know, they said you could become a doctor and then you'll be able to care for people and do research, which kind of qualifies you for both. And so that was always the, from a, even high, like early high school years, that was kind of the path that I saw as being really interesting of being a caregiver, but also a researcher and mm-hmm. starting to explore the frontiers of, of human functioning and human performance optimization, you know, what makes us excel and what makes us sick. 
Yeah. And why do the same things kind of do both sometimes? And then when I was in medical school, I just had some really great research mentors because I was doing research with people while I was in med school um, and in college, actually. And one of them offered me an opportunity to stay and do a PhD with her. It was Dr. Sally Temple, who is just one of the most badass scientists in the field of, of neurostem cell research and learning. And she is one of the people who figured out in the, it was like the 70s or 80s, who was courageous enough to publish a single authorship publication in Nature when all the other authors took their name off, sure. that the adult brain has dividing stem cells in it, which we never knew before. And that really inspired me. And so I was like, you know, and then she won a MacArthur Award. Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, I feel like there's a sign here. She's offering me to work with her. PhD is a little unpredictable. It's like four, it's not, it doesn't have certainty like med school where you know you just to pass and you get your MD at the end. It's like, this could be a really long path. Yeah. There's no certain end. But I, I took the step and then I ended up extending my med school a little bit for a few for four years, did my neuroscience PhD. And it was really good that I did that because in that time frame, there were about 30 critical psychedelic medicine publications that came out. And one of my friends, best friends in med school, it's like, Dave, I was going to be a surgeon and then I was going to be a neurologist. And, and I wasn't sure, you know, what I was going to do, but I knew I wasn't fully satisfied by those options. And, and my friend was like, Dave, you really should consider psychiatry. You'd be a really good psychiatrist. And I was like, nah, you know. What does that mean? <laughs> like, what, what is it in your natural, besides having a high IQ and a, you know, genuine curiosity and maybe even um, a compassion, it feels like you have a compassion for people. What is it in your personality that was like, oh, you should go into psychiatry? I think I've always loved just connecting with people authentically mm -hmm. and just really like, getting to the good stuff of what's like underneath the surface of, of who we are as people and, and, and really exploring and unearthing that vulnerability. And vulnerability just seemed like a, a source of healing for us. When we can really open up to each other, that's when the magic happens of, of changing our lives because we can really be open to change and be, you know, just connected. Yeah. And, and then when we connect, we notice immediately the similarities between our, each other. And that's healing in and of itself. And so, yeah, I think that was a, that was a big part of it. And I think my friends who are the closest to me got that. They noticed that when we were hanging out, that I was very present with them and that sometimes they'd feel better after we had conversations. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, that wasn't the case with a lot of people in medical school that were our colleagues. Right. It's so interesting, right? Because some, some it's like, uh, you know, I don't want to say not a curiosity, but it's always directing towards the data or the science. And it's hard for a lot of those types of people to sort of look underneath and around or feel. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have a technique, I'm just curious, to offload or protect yourself in the process of, you know, dealing with people and people's feelings or the discoveries or the unpacking of, you know, whatever traumas and things like that, because we're going to get into that. But I, I wonder if it's natural for you or if you have techniques. I, I think some, some stuff does come naturally to us as human beings, but there are so many techniques. There's no one right way to do it. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And we really have to figure out, I think we, we just talked about this in our training, the in-bodied life uh, ketamine assisted therapy training that we were doing at Topanga Commune this week which was just incredible. And a big focus is what we call like spiritual emotional hygiene. Yeah. Right? So, which is not just for being a therapist, it's for going out in the world and interacting with anybody. And I think there's, there's a couple, if I was going to summarize it into as, as brief uh, of a synopsis as I could for this, because it's a big topic, the most simple 
things that for it to know are start with old stuff, Buddhism, mm-hmm. a couple tenets of Buddhism and a couple tenets of ancient Greek mythology from what is literally the three tenets of, of, uh, that are inscribed on the temple of Apollo at Delphi, which is one of the oldest temples, um, modern Western temples mm-hmm. in Western culture. And those three tenets are, one, know thyself. Know what's me and what's not me. Know when I'm feeling something that I can identify if it's coming from me or if that's coming from someone or something else. Because if it's coming from me, then I can I can attach to it and work with it. But if it's coming from someone else, I might just want to let that run off my back, mm-hmm. right? I might just want to let it pass by and not attach to it. And that's usually the, the better thing to do because it's not about us. It's about somebody or something else. And the second tenet is nothing to excess. Don't be gluttonous. The third tenet is certainty brings ruin. Surety brings ruin. So do not have hubris. Be modest in the face of what you don't know. And so I think those three things are really great ancient guides. And I think they're actually older than modern Buddhism that actually help us to understand kind of how to how to be careful with our energy and other people's energy and how to live a good life. And then Buddhism has some really interesting, one in particular, which is just attachment to stuff in general is fastest path to suffering. And that if we allow ourselves to experience without attaching to our identity, like actually just be without making it about who we are, we can just experience stuff and maybe like evaluate it later, then we actually get more out of the experience and it becomes less hard. It actually invites ease into our lives. Mm -hmm. And then we're more present with our friends, family, clients, everything, our work, everything, because we're not so stuck on all this incoming stuff that can be really overwhelming for us. Yeah, I think so. And especially when we have roles, right? Uh, You're the scientist, you're the doctor, I'm the patient, I'm the whatever, all the, I'm the boss or, you Mm -hmm. know, whatever the roles are. I think it's interesting when you, you know, when you can sort of just be in it. I am curious when I, you know, meet people like you where, you know, you sort of have to know what you know and then have the ability somehow to be open for it all being wrong or um, not researching or investigating with a bias if you can help it. That Because that's something I think at this place in my life, and so this is maybe a selfish question, where I'm trying to understand where do, I do want to know myself or mm-hmm. my own truths, but somehow also simultaneously not be so locked into that. Because that's like an interesting place mm-hmm. to try to live. So how do you, as somebody who probably has to do that all the time, that's what I appreciate about you know real science where or it's like, well, this is what I think or feel, but now I have to also almost forget all that and mm-hmm. be open to all of the unknown. Oh yeah. Do you do that naturally, you think? Maybe naturally. Easier. I mean, it, it's tr- it's learned, right? It so is? Yeah, it's learned behavior. All of it is learned behavior. Okay. So when we think about naturally, it's like, is it natural? Like, do you, are you born being a professional volleyball player or do you have to right. practice a lot? But maybe right? you lean towards tendencies that make you better at that, let's say. Exactly. But a lot of it also has to do with our mentors, the people who nurture us growing up, the role models. When we're little kids, we're like sponges. So we suck that in. And if we are growing, growing up around people who spend every moment of their lives fearing the unknown, guess what? Yeah, We're going to fear the unknown too, because that's what we're seeing around us. Those are our role models. And so I think there's a, there's a, a really great practice. We talk about gratitude a lot. 
Mm-hmm. It's a really great way to change the way you feel about, about things, which is understanding that the process of life is not about certainty because there is no certainty because literally everything in life is changing around us all the time. So the sooner that we can be grateful for the uncertainty and grateful for the unknown, the sooner that the unknown opens up to us as beauty and majesty and richness, right? And that is what makes life so exciting and fun. If we just knew everything all the time, life would get really boring. It would be the same and not diverse. And so Mm. I challenge my clients to ask themselves a very simple question when we start working together, which is, is it possible that what we were taught about ourselves and what we know ourselves to be isn't the complete story? And most of us can ask that question and without much judgment say, yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And if we can say, if we can admit that, yeah, it's possible, then we can also admit that the unknown has a lot to offer us. Yeah. And that we have a lot to learn from just the process of self-discovery. A lot of people come to me and they're like, what's the meaning of life, Dr. Dave? I'm like, I can't really tell you what the meaning of your life is, but I can tell you that as a human being, one of the things that's really interesting about being human is that we have the ability to self-discover ourselves. And that is really, in a lot of ways, the meaning of life. We discover the meaning by just being in the process and present with the process, even though it's hard sometimes, it's not always joyful and sometimes really hurts, but being present with that process is what allows us to self-discover and that's when we find the meaning. Yeah. But if we close ourselves off to that unknown, then the meaning becomes elusive and really confusing sometimes and life itself then becomes confusing. Yeah, and and I feel like the way the world is set up so that we can, you know, work in our nine to fives and kind of get stuff done and get dinner on the table is kind of almost antithetical to that discovery or openness process because, you know, we, there doesn't feel like a lot of room to be, uh, you know, a lot of self-inquiry mm-hmm. or whimsical because we live in this world of like, you got to be here, you got to be there. So I, I, that's a very interesting thing for people to just have that opportunity to do it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so the papers that came out, what years was this? These, these 30 or some odd important papers on psychedelics? So that was probably between, so I was reviewing them for the very first time in 2012. Okay. That was the first time that I saw, so it was the paper, it was basically 20, the, the 20 years before that mm-hmm. was when they really, like the real high quality science started to come out showing that in top tier scientific journals, unequivocally, there is something to these medicines that mm-hmm. is unique and that they really, really work for certain people in a way that nothing else we've ever seen works. And to the point where they might actually be opening us up to a paradigm shift in the way we treat health conditions, particularly mental health. I think this is important. And I want to just sit here for a second because a lot of times there have, you know, I was raised in the Caribbean. And so Mm -hmm. I had a lot of loose cannon adults around me, right? Mm -hmm. And so my reaction to that was kind of lock and load, sort of a linear, and let's say if I had, I was born with some sort of natural personality traits, I just went full throttle with them, right? Yeah. And um, so I wasn't particularly experimental at all with any drugs. I smoked a little weed. I never drank alcohol. But in my kind of late 40s, I think Michael Pollan's book really helped me because it just seemed like a a conversation and a, you know, and it wasn't so sciencey. I couldn't get my head around Mm it, Um, you know, how to change your mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I started really paying attention and simultaneously, I felt like my brain was getting hard. 
um, a little bit. Like you know? rigid? Yeah, I could feel it. And I could feel like words escaping. I also have three daughters and I went through something with one of my, with my middle daughter that introduced me to Byron Katie. Mm. And I know Katie. And so this whole notion of self-inquiry, I don't know, there was a sort of a perfect storm where it was like really fascinating to me that psychedelics, once I had a little bit of an understanding, seemed so much more safe and interesting to me. I'm open to Chinese medicine mm -hmm. and I take supplements. I would rather do that all day long than go to the doctor's office and be given medication, prescription medication, right? So it was a really interesting thing where it feels like in the last sort of five, eight years, there's been this shift that it's not for like, oh, those wild people, whatever the hell that means, right? Right, but the really, Yeah, and you said the word medicine and I, I just, you know, and having the, setting the table for this conversation, it's like, hey, these, these are things from nature, you know, and they were used forever for, you know, not to trip out. Yes, maybe to have it as some kind of enlightenment, it's possible to go to a different, and I think you talk about sort of like, almost like a different part of your perception that already exists. It's mm -hmm. something that's already there. It's just, mm -hmm. maybe we can't see it. That I really appreciated the opportunity to think about it differently. Cause I, I think probably the way that I was brought up thinking about it, cause see, remember my, our parents were the hippies. Mm -hmm. So they were just like, you know, going hard. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> I think I really appreciated this opportunity to find another way to uh, you know, get rid of offload, see it differently, whatever that is, using something that's natural, mm -hmm. but also in this measured way. Because mm -hmm. what you're saying is, these treatments, these are highly measured, and you know, you guys are doing this in a in a in a systematic way. This isn't like, well, how do you feel and take this? It's and so I just want to start by kind of laying it down for people that this is your approach. Yeah, and and the psychedelic approach to your point, doesn't, isn't a drug-required approach. We talk a lot about focusing on psychedelic drugs, but mm -hmm. let me ask you this. When you're on the beach and you're in the throes of a really intense game and mm -hmm. you're also like pushing yourself like to the limit of your physical performance, do you feel different up here and in here? Sure, we were talking about flow state just earlier. I That's was just, a psychedelic I was, state. Right, I was sitting with Patrick and we were talking about it and I go, I think it's very similar to flow where it's your intuition and you're not analyzing or doubting because you talk a lot about performance mm -hmm. and you're in it and the best is when it, you know, it slows down and you know what to do. Mm -hmm. um, and even if it doesn't go your way, it's you can handle it. Right. Because that's what life is. Right, exactly. And psychedelic really means like mind- revealing or mind expanding. It doesn't mean hippies doing drugs and get high in the park, right? It literally means mind expanding, which is unfortunate that it's such a stigmatized word because mm -hmm. it's a beautiful word. And it was, it was coined by um, Humphrey Osmond and Aldous Huxley um, mm -hmm. back in the day as the best way at that time to describe what these medicines were doing because prior to that, we were calling them psychotomimetics, which is to mimic psychosis, mm. which isn't quite accurate, <laughs> although yeah. you can see why that might be the case when our primary psychedelic that people were using back then was LSD and at very high doses. But that word is a beautiful word because it's really about mind expansion. And it's about basically, to use the metaphor of, of a car, if you imagine like our bodies and our minds are are one thing. They're not separate. Mind and the body is one thing. Another thing that con common misconception in medicine. And what you, we have the ability to effectively look under the hood sometimes and see what's going on down there. Mm. But 
and, and psychedelic medicines, just like flow states or now other meditation, yoga, mm-hmm. extreme sports, right? All of these are tools and techniques to get their breathing. Yeah. Right? And this is important too. You're saying, listen, you can get to these states and that's without even the psychedelics It exists. So I think it's important for people to remember that. Yeah. Right. And that's, and that's what we teach in the trainings right. because the medicine is not, it's not the, it's not required but it is a really helpful tool that molecularly gives us what we call like a bottom-up experiential learning mm-hmm. opportunity where you can feel what it feels like to be present, in flow, safe, and really in touch with and connected to yourself and everything around you in a way that maybe you don't remember what it feels like. Maybe the last mm-hmm. time you felt that way, you were like two years old and the world was a different place for you, Right. So I, you know, I think about this working with people in wellness and you sort of say, okay, we talk about the food, you talk about movement and all this. And then you start to realize when you spend a little more time with people, their brain chemistry isn't even going to let them get there. With, right, with just natural techniques. Or, or, or just with, saying like, hey, we, you know, eating like this or whatever. They're, they're in a place, they're locked in, right. in a place. And so when I think about the treatments that you're involved with, I wonder if sometimes when you're... Because then there's talk therapy, which that's great. I think that's all more about a kind of just doing an overview of your life. But when you're talking about people with real trauma, you're talking about PTSD, you're talking about people with, you know, chronic stress, mm-hmm. not stress. Everybody has stress. You're talking about right. chronic stress that maybe it's just also an opportunity. I call it jump the track. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we just ju- jump the track a little bit? So is this part of the re- one of the part of the reasons that you this interested you because knowing like we can do this we can do this we can do this but then sometimes we're going to hit maybe some limitations yeah yeah i mean we hit limitations and unfortunately like over probably over 60% maybe even 70% of people with post traumatic stress disorder as one example long term probably 30% of the or only 30% of those people treated with the standard western treatments actually sustain remission long term yeah. And 70% are still symptomatic. And that's a really poor statistic statistic in yeah. our space. And it makes, it doesn't just make our patients unhappy, it makes us really unhappy because we went into this field to really help people and then our treatments don't work well. And yeah. so, you know, at some point, and it, this was kind of what happened for me, at some point it forces you to ask the question, especially if you're research-oriented at all, are, do we have this right? Like, is our understanding of trauma right and mental health right if our treatments are only working 50% of the time or less at best? Mm. Maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe we need better tools, right? And and to the point, psychedelic medicines are not a panacea. They're not going to help everybody and they're not for everyone. Right. And they have to be, absolutely have to be administered in a safe environment. But when administered in a safe, thoughtful, highly curated environment, with trained professionals, whether that's a sh- an actual lineage trained shaman or whether it's somebody like me, you can unlock an, uh, and unlock your access to your potential by remake remaking the or reshaping the meaning that you have about yourself, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily what we were taught as kids because we're all taught to think about ourselves in a certain way. We're given the words. We're literally taught language by our parents and by the people around us that. They give us the meaning for how to describe ourselves in the world. But that meaning might not be the way we actually know ourselves to be. So as we learn to discover ourselves, the psychedelic states, flow states, and the medicines, especially used in that safe context, help us to create safe space Mm -hmm. to find the actual meaning of ourselves. What does it actually mean to be me? 
Yeah. Not what was I taught is, is that what it means to be me? Yeah, Going back to that original question, is it possible that what I know about myself in a non-judgmental way, right? Is it possible it's not the full story? Maybe I need to find my own language for how to describe myself. And even the way maybe things happen, Mm-hmm. You know, like, I think we sometimes view things when we're little and it gets burned on us, but it may, you know, it's sort of like, well, I'm, oh, let's say someone said, well, my parents, uh, they left me and they were adopted by an incredible couple and that this person had a great life, but they always had this, you know, yearning or felt like, oh, I wasn't good enough or whatever. And then you realize, no, maybe your parents did you a favor and left you these badass people that loved you and made you safe. And so maybe also things like this, when you talk about it, even in what people feel is a traumatic situation, they get the opportunity to, to reevaluate, re, relook at it. Now, what if somebody, a soldier, mm-hmm. someone who's had a maybe a, a sexual trauma, how does this type of experience allow them? And and the thing is, it's sort of it's over, and the mind is what keeps it alive. So, how is there a way that something like this? Maybe you can give me an example of a way that someone's able to go in um, safely and find a a different reframe around something that is pretty, you know, jarring. Yeah, it's a great question, and it, it and the short answer is that. It's not different with the, the the actual mechanism of how it works, the right. process. It's not actually different with the medicine on board as it is what we do in the office without psychedelic medicine. Mm-hmm. It's the same process, but the psychedelic medicine, in a, in a similar way, you know, bringing in what Apollo does also just yeah. helps res- like amplify a sense of safety. Chemically speaking, Apollo does it through touch. Hand holding does it through touch. Soothing music does it through our ears. But as we do things in the environment that amplify our sense of safety in our brains and all of them do it in the same, it turns out all these things, including psychedelic medicines like MDMA are all acting on the same parts of the brain as soothing music and soothing touch. And they release similar neurotransmitter cascades in our brains. We feel safe enough to go back and reevaluate memories that are too uncomfortable or too painful normally to address. Mm -hmm. And then we can actually ask the question of what did that thing that happened to me that was so painful actually mean about me? And is it possible that it's not my fault that that happened, right? Yeah. And then we can, but but you can't when you're afraid all the time after that event, or you you know, which often happens when we see all the time is people have something really tragic and challenging happen to them, and then the, the their support system makes them feel like it was their fault, which happens all too often. There's no actual support afterwards. So some then, nice shame to add on top of something, right? And then that gets internalized mm-hmm. on top of it, and then. Why would you ever go back and reevaluate that if there's so much guilt and shame associated with it? Why? Why would you ever do that? And so, what and, what happens in the in a person's is it the it's the nervous system, right? Like, what's happening? Is it okay? They lock into this belief, and then they're just hammering their nervous system, and it's creating chronic stress. Like, mm. what physiologically happens if somebody? I love talking about this. Oh, so, good, because I I'm just trying to learn and really understand. Uh, because I think sometimes even being able to, if someone, because everyone's listening to this has something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when we also can also get sort of a, even understanding of what's happening. Yeah. Because you can talk about your fault. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, no, this happens. You had this reaction. And now this this thing, uh, you know, is kind of locked in. Mm-hmm. Well, and I will, what I will say is nothing is actually that locked in. Mm-hmm. It's everything that's learned can be unlearned. Mm-hmm. 
if you intend to unlearn it. But we also learn things unintentionally through experience that was not well thought through, like when we're exposed <laughs> to trauma or stress or things that we didn't plan for, right? right? Which happens all the time. Yeah. So what's happening in the body and the brain that is interesting is that we have this fear center in our brains that we fondly think of as the fear center called the amygdala. And it's this very old part of our brains that goes back to ancient reptiles. And, and that's why it's called the reptilian brain. And what it's really doing though, more than detecting fear, is it detects contrast. It detects newness, difference, unfamiliarity, mm -hmm. uncertainty. Why? Because evolutionarily, that's what caused us potential end to our line, right? That uncertainty, newness, unfamiliarity, those things are triggering our brains to say, hey, you need to pay way more attention to what's going on right now because you might end here, yeah. right? Or your friends or family might end here. Your community might be compromised. That's a huge problem. That is really important to be activated if we're running out of air, water, food, shelter, or we're losing our community support, mm -hmm. right? In those cases, we want that part of our brain to be activated. And then that diverts all available resources, i.e. blood, which carries our oxygen and our nutrients to our organ systems, then takes away our waste from those organ systems to skeletal muscles, heart, lungs, uh, motor cortex, amygdala, and takes those resources from somewhere because we only have so many resources. So they come from our reproductive system, our digestive system, our immune system, our sleep and recovery systems, and, and all the stuff that is not supposed to be functioning when we're running from a lion. Right. And so in the moment that we're actually experiencing a survival, potential survival threat, that's a really good thing. We evolved and hardwired that system over hundreds of millions of years. It's not unique to us. It's not even unique to mammals. Hundreds of millions of years, the system has been hardwired into us to respond to threat to keep us alive. So we can't actually change it. We can't break it. It's not a rule we can break, so it's important to know that. However, we can bend it by learning how to control it. Once we understand that the system is in place, we can modulate it a little bit. And so one of the ways that, that is taught in Eastern traditions and tribal traditions is breath. So breath is one of the most interesting, and, and touch as well. And one of the most interesting examples of, of those two in particular that I love is that Almost instantaneously with breath, I think it's like 60 to 90 seconds. With touch, it's almost instant. When you are touched by someone you love and trust, it sends a sick, like, like a mother holding a crying baby. Mm -hmm. We're all big babies. Mm -hmm. It just sends a safety signal to our emotional brain that tells the amygdala that's blinking off, hey, there's newness, there's uncertainty, there's unfamiliarity. Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. It tells that, which is what we call anxiety. Sure. It tells that part of the brain, hey, you don't need to go off right now. You're actually safe because I wouldn't allow you to pay attention to the soothing feeling if you were actually running from a lion. Mm. And that's a subconscious process. It's like completely beneath our awareness, but it's there. And it's the same thing that happens when we deep breathe. Because if you're running from a lion, you're not going to be able to stop and no. pay attention mm -hmm. to the feeling of the air coming into your nose, mouth, and lungs. And so where flow comes in is it's balance between the fight or flight sympathetic stress response and the parasympathetic rest and recovery response, and we meet somewhere in the middle in the gray area, which is where we have the benefits of fight or flight being high acuity, high focus, high energy, adrenaline, mm -hmm. right? And th things like that, those resources become available, but we're also in complete cognitive control. 
We have empathy. We have access to our creative parts of our brains. We have access to the recovery parts of our bodies and brains. And it's, and it's really practicing achieving that balance between those two sides of the, of the body that is absolutely critical because if we are chronically stressed all the time, we're like literally, if we're stressed every day or many moments of every day, then we're literally resource depleting our entire recovery nervous system. Like, but we still are asking it to work. We're saying, hey, digest my food. Yeah. Help me reproduce. Help me fight off illness. Help me sleep. And yet that part of those parts of our bodies are getting no blood and no waste removal. So no food, no oxygen, and no garbage pickup. So yeah. what is going to happen to those organ systems? Distress yeah. and then disease, right? The thing I appreciate about what you're doing and is because of technology and everyone's talked about it till they're blue in the face. Now they're talking about AI. You know, it's like, we all know it's not going anywhere. I mean, I, I mean, I always- AI? Just technology. Oh, technology. You know, so I, what I appreciate is that you, you're going along, you're in these practices, and then you think, huh, maybe there's a way that I can do this signal to to the brain to say, hey, you're okay. So where do you get the thought that mm -hmm. you can bring technology in the Apollo and in a, in a wearable on your wrist or mm -hmm. ankle um, or clip? And it, it, forgive me, it's it's sound versus electric, correct? It's sound waves, yeah. Right, versus yeah. electric current. Which, which is what came before. Right. Yeah. So are you sleeping? Do you get one of these dreams? Uh, are you, does it seem like a just a natural solution to something. Where do you get this idea? You mean, did it come to me in a dream? Yeah. I'm just, oh, that's, it, a, that's a funny question. In some ways, parts of it did. Because um, you do feel like at certain points, I mean, the psychedelic and, and um, you did the largest epigen epigenetic study of psychedelics. Right? Is that? Am I clarifying that correctly? I, I mean, largest is really well, just not exactly large, fair because okay. it because there aren't any other studies. But we did Great. one of the first and most. I'm, not, I'm always number one in a race of yeah. one. But yeah, right. Take it when you can get it. Okay, <laughs> exactly. Don't be like, listen, yeah. there haven't been others. But it, I want to clarify: it's epigenetic, epigenetic study of psychedelics. Just published in February. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Dude, is that like it's like having a kid? Isn't it? It is. It took five years. You still smile a lot too, huh? It was published. It's smile worthy. <laughs> when you when you publish something like that, and I'm, I'll get back on track. Is are you nervous? Sometimes Th this was so. This study actually, this study idea that was published in February, did come to me in a dream mm -hmm. because I was reading a lot about. I came from a stem cell lab, and that was Sally's lab mm -hmm. where I did my PhD. And in stem cell epigenetics, are everything. Because epigenetic code is what tell when a, when all of our stem cells and all of our cells in our body. If people aren't don't remember biology one hundred and one, which I don't expect anybody to remember, every cell of our bodies has all the same DNA. It's pretty miraculous, right? Our hair, our skin, brain cells. The only cells that don't are eggs and sperm. So that poses an interesting problem. If all the cells have the same same software code in them, how does one cell know to be skin and one cell know to be brain? Well because there's another layer of code on the DNA that says, hey, if, you're, if I'm a stem cell and I'm going to become skin, then I'm going to have this layer of code say, turn down brain proteins and turn up skin proteins. And if I know I'm going to be brain, I say, turn up brain proteins, turn down skin proteins. Mm -hmm. And that's epigenetic, which is a layer that's called on the DNA. Yeah. And that is different in every single cell of our whole bodies, for the most part. And so there is a very famous... So there's been a lot of theories. This is not actually a new theory. It started back probably as early as the turn, uh, the turn of the 20th century. So in, in like the early 1900s, 
doctors were noticing that people who had severe trauma, survivors of famine, survivors of really severe stuff, yeah. their children were had an increased likelihood of illness and their children's children. And nobody knew why, but it was observed, it was recorded. And then years later, Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who runs the Department of, um, of Trauma and Psychedelic Research at Sinai now, uh, came from Yale and she asked a really hard question because this was confusing, which was, what's actually going on in these people with PTSD on the epigenetic level? And she found that there are certain, from looking at population-based studies with Holocaust survivors and also doing um, other studies that came about in populations, and then that turned into mouse studies and animal studies, they showed that, believe it or not, that tra traumatic experiences, mm -hmm. which are challenging experiences perceived as threat, one or multiple experiences get recorded in that epigenetic code. Yeah. And that gets, as we were talking about with Laird earlier, that gets passed down over in animal models, uh, at least four generations in humans, it could be 10 plus because we don't get the benefit of safety ever in our lives on an extended basis. We always have challenge and threat. And so that was really interesting because up until that point, a lot of, a lot of people thought that mental illness was heavily genetic, mm. not epigenetic. But epigenetic is different than genetic because that's the code that reflects the influence of the environment on us and yeah. it's stored in that code. So we thought, well, if, if trauma, one or multiple negative experiences perceived as threatening for which we don't have adequate preparation or support, which is kind of our modern definition of trauma that we're proposing, if that causes these epigenetic changes to cortisol receptor genes, which it does because Rachel showed it, and now it's been proven multiple times, then MDMA-assisted therapy, which is just three doses of medicine with 42 hours of psychotherapy over 12 weeks, that is clinically reversing these PTSD symptoms in people who've had PTSD that's treatment-resistant for 17.6 years on average, mm -hmm. and the gross majority of them are getting better long-term, not just short-term, but long-term with just three doses of medicine and 12 weeks of psychotherapy. Clinically, they're getting better, and nothing makes nothing was helping these people. And so we thought, well, if trauma... If traumatic events can cause these experiences, maybe MDMA-assisted therapy is almost like reversing that yeah. because we see it clinically. And so we just did that study. And that was a combination of trying to understand from the traditional ayahuasca tribal perspective of how, how their perception of how medicine impacts DNA, which they have their own stories about um, that are not in the same language as what we describe, but they're still talking about the same thing and, and learning about tri and studying tribal medicine and then bringing that back to some of the Western approaches. We started the study in 20, 2017, I think. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then ultimately that was published in February showing without a doubt this reversal is happening, that MDMA-assisted therapy is acting like a reverse trauma by molecularly amplifying the safety pathway in the brain not just in the moment when the medicine's active, but actually in the long haul. And it's reversing those cortisol methylation changes that trauma causes. And the amount of change on those genes is directly correlated to the amount of clinical outcome. So there's a yeah. linear relationship that kind of seems to be surrounding the story of safety. Yeah. And then that, before we knew the results of that study, that theory is what led to the development of Apollo because... I did my MDMA training in 2016 with MAPS, and that was very, 
that just, I just watching this happen, it made me realize, like watching that training and watching what the patients were going through, it just made me realize very quickly that safety is critical because mm-hmm. it was reinforcing what we learned in our traditional Western psychotherapy training and the doctor training of building a, a patient, what's called like a physician patient alliance, where mm-hmm. we're on a team to help you heal. I'm your, I'm your guide. I'm not your healer. I am your guide to help you heal yourself. Right. And you're setting up the environment. And I'm setting up the mm-hmm. environment. I'm curating a safe space for you to heal. And then you actually heal yourself. Not, not me, right? I'm, I'm greasing the wheels. Yeah. That's, it's too complicated. It would be too complicated for you to be able to do that for every person. Right. I mean, and, it's have, not even possible. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the closest we get to that is surgery. But even when we right. do surgery, mm-hmm. you still have to take care of yourself afterwards or you're going to get an infection. You could, get, you could get very ill after surgery. You know, there's a lot of stuff that can still go wrong after we have a surgical procedure. And so there's a lot of self-healing that has to still occur. And so from studying all of that and understanding MDMA and how that works and the mechanism, which nobody was really ever interested in before, or not that many people were interested in, we started to wonder, is it possible that if MDMA is with us, is amplifying the safety of the psychotherapy environment, and that's why people are getting these dramatic responses, which was also consistent with what the patients were saying, Mm -hmm. right? They said the therapy is 80%, the medicine's 20%, even though... That's also contrary to popular opinion. Mm-hmm. Can we produce technology that taps into that same pathway? Mm-hmm. And then we looked at everything that induces safety in the body and touch rose to the surface because touch induces soothing touch, loving touch, intru- induces the release of all those neurotransmitters that MDMA releases. Mm-hmm. And so that became the path. And we started evaluating that. And as we started making more prototypes and doing more testing in the lab and trials at the University of Pittsburgh and real world, we so, start to see those changes. So you're so you're a scientist and now you have to be an entrepreneur who's doing a technical uh, device. Mm-hmm. So you know this that's a that's a big leap, I, w- I would think, because you're trying to capture something and say, I need it to do this. Mm-hmm. So how do you first of all convince people to let you start the process? And then how do you know um, and I know there's, you know, a lot of studies and such, but how do you know, like, oh, we're really moving in the right, in the right direction with the Apollo? That, that's also a great question. So first off, I think the most important thing to say is that there's absolutely no way that I did this alone and it's impossible to do these kinds of things sure. alone. And I was very blessed that my wife had a very complimentary skill set to me and, st- and still does of being very knowledgeable about economics and finance and industry effectively and Mm -hmm. what we call technology transfer. How do you take a technology that's nascent, new, just discovered, maybe even it's just an idea, How do you? but it's a really good idea. How do you take that and make it something that is implemented into society that people actually want to use? Because even if you make a great invention, people won't use it. What good does it do, right? And so I started out at the University of Pittsburgh, just with an idea, me and, and my professor colleague, Dr. Greg Siegel, and we just had this idea, actually, that came from military research on brain-computer interfaces, which was mm-hmm. where you implant a chip in the brain in somebody who has an amputation or something like that, and then you train that person to control a mechanical limb with their brain waves, with their mm-hmm. brain, brain power, which is so incredible. And now those studies have really progressed, but it literally requires brain surgery for that to happen. So we, so Greg and I had this, this interesting idea and we thought, you know, well, could you do brain computer interface work 
topically through the skin yeah. without actually requiring a brain implant. Because mm-hmm. brain implants are really risky. And so we started exploring. I like how you say that with an up lilt in your voice. Yeah, yeah. just a little. Really risky. <laughs> I think people people don't understand, you know, yeah. how, of like, course. what it's, what it means. I mean, but also people are desperate for solutions. And so if you're mm. struggling, you'll take anything you can get. Yeah. But it's also up to us as the clinical community to try to, you know, first do no harm and come up with other solutions for people that are less harm, less risky. And so to us, it just seemed obvious. Let's focus on less risky solutions. Maybe we can do this to the skin. And then I ended up getting invited. Greg and I got invited to do, and uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, entrepreneurship presentations. Oh, and God. we're scientists. Yeah, I know. And that so, must have been amazing. <laughs> it was awful in the beginning. That's actually, what I mean. yeah. <laughs> You want to talk I, about like EBITDA <laughs> and your ROI, and you're like, what? <laughs> exactly. I can tell you that was one of the most, that was one of the first times in my recent life that I felt like a complete and total failure because I was writing grants, I was getting grants, I was, I, I was, you know, treating people who were getting good results, and I felt like I was really doing great. And then the university entrepreneurship folks at the Innovation Institute were like, hey, come and present this as a business idea. And get some funding for your research project. And so I'm like, oh, this will be, they're like, oh, this will be a piece of cake. Yeah. Like, take no time. I'm like, oh yeah, all right, sure, I'll try it. So I'm still working as a physician and researcher full-time. And I'm going to these after-hours entrepreneurship mm-hmm. seminars. Getting hammered by questions. Hammered and failing yeah. every time. Because mm-hmm. it's not an NIH grant. It's a totally different realm. And I was just getting my feet wet. And I was like, I do not, this is, I'm out of my element. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, I could just quit or I I could go to ask my wife what she would do. And oh, so, interesting. yeah. And so I went home one day because the, because the idea had so much potential, yeah. you know, the idea was so rich and it's so much potential and, and I didn't want to let it go that easily, but I also was not going to make myself suffer to do something that was not viable. And well, that's just intelligent. Right. Oh, thank you. Yeah. In retrospect. After getting hugs from Kathleen, then what did she say? Because you probably needed from uh, Catherine. I mean, yeah, Catherine. Sorry, you oh, probably yeah. needed hugs after getting, you know. Oh yeah, no, she was very helpful, and and she looked at the idea. We talked it over, and she, I told her what the university was asking for us, and mm-hmm. and she's like, "That's all they want, and you can get ten grand." I'm like, "Yeah, that's that's all they want. They just want like a, a pitch deck." Yeah. I don't know what a pitch deck is. Can you help? <laughs> You're so lucky you didn't know what a pitch deck was. <laughs> I like I make I make like you know like science lectures. I had no idea what I was, what I was doing, and she's like. Uh, I think I can help you with this if your team will wants me to. Yeah. And so she came into a couple of meetings and we came in second place with her help within just a few weeks of her working with us. We got $8,000 and then that helped us run our first double-blind randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial. Okay, but how do you start? Like, so you know it's sound because you know that shows up the highest mm-hmm. over electrical and other. Yeah, oh, how do so we... how do you start to hone in on what you think is going to work? And Oh, so that was because of... So that that's a that's a bigger story, but to to bring it together okay. concisely, effectively, I was seeing patients at the time, mm-hmm. and my patient. We were taught to prescribe frequently, right? Yeah. And when we looked at, and this is a big thing that came up in our embodied life training, is that when you really look at what's happening to the patients we're prescribing SSRI medications to, like Prozac and Zoloft, and what's ha- especially, I'm just just going to talk about post traumatic stress sure. disorder for a moment because it's easier to focus on one thing. So when we give those people SSRIs, which are the only FDA-approved treatments currently, and we give them benzodiazepines, which are not really indicated, and we give them 
other medicines for sleep and things like that, like Ambien, they actually numb us to our own feelings. And it decreases engagement in psychotherapy. I'm like, why aren't any of my patients engaged? They're all numb. Yeah. Like, it can't even engage with their own feelings anymore. So it wasn't that much of a surprise to me why they weren't getting better because it kind of violated the psychotherapeutic model. And we were being taught both. And I'm like, these are not compatible. It's not that you can't use them together, but long-term, they're not compatible. And so they're just, it's a Band-Aid. It's a Band-Aid. It's like a Band-Aid on your broken leg. Your leg's still broken. We're not getting to the root. And so I started asking people, what actually helps you feel better? And you started asking your patients. My patients. Yeah. Yeah. If this isn't helping you, what do you do? They're like, we listen to music. We hold pets. We hold our pets. We hug our family. We try to spend time with our families. We And everybody had these similar answers. Okay. But they had been developing little techniques on their own mm-hmm. just to try to navigate it. Right. Okay. And and so, and then I went back to the literature. I'm like, is there any basis for this? And I reviewed everything I could find. It was very, very clear that, number one, all of those things were validated in literature to help, including biofeedback, which is the science of right. breath work. And that ended up teaching me that, which is like a 50-year-old science specialty that's incredibly valuable, but also underrated. And from looking at biofeedback literature, it was very clear that breathing at a certain rate can, within as little as five minutes, reduce your symptoms, improve your mood, and help you just generally feel better, even if you're really ill. And that was really encouraging. And so I started to look into that. And what I realized is that when you do a biofeedback exercise, your HRV, heart rate variability, goes way up. And I was like, that's interesting. I've never even heard of HRV. What is HRV? We don't teach this in medical school. And then I started to look at research and see, hey, what happens? What, what do people with PTSD, what, what is their HRV? Has any studies been done? Mm. And it turns out that people with PTSD have very, very low HRV, like some of the lowest and HRV is, you know, yeah. one of the most reliable markers now of resilience to stress and recovery in the body. But trauma invariably decreases it. Mm-hmm. Biofeedback increases it and their symptoms get better. Oh. Who would have thought? Meditation also increases it. So does yoga. So does soothing touch. So does soothing music. And basically every vag- vagal nerve and recovery technique, sleep, breathing, all these things boost heart rate variability. So I was, we were thinking, you know, if people are already doing this stuff and it works, and then we can have a biomarker, can we give people, can we try to attain that state using either electricity or vibration or sound? You know, sound had been done, but could we put this in a wearable effectively and give people something they can take out of the office? Yeah. Right? They don't need me and they don't need a drug. They can literally go out of the office and have a tool that could potentially activate the same system. And HRV was really the key. And that was how we ended up figuring out in our clinical trials because we measured HRV and cognitive performance and subjective stress and a bunch of other biometrics as an outcome in the lab. And we showed that the Apollo vibrations reliably improve heart rate variability even under stress. And that had never been shown before. Mm-hmm. And that when you improve HRV under stress, like a cognitive, like like effectively giving, putting somebody in a situation where they feel like they're running out of time on a standardized test yeah. in a lab, oh, yeah, yeah. but they're completely wired up. And people, the tendency of people is just to run, but they can't because they have to stay in it. So they get really uncomfortable. And yet with, a, with only these specific rhythms of vibration that came from biofeedback literature, we realized that people, you could reverse the stress response and that improved presence, it improved right. flow, 
It improved cognitive performance up to 25%, meaning 25% more questions right on a test, yeah. which is like an amphetamine level of effect. And it improved HRV all in tandem, all together. This podcast is brought to you by Ritual. I personally have been taking their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin since the pandemic began. I was just looking for a really great multivitamin, and I love the fact that it has high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. Because for me, if you're going to, and if I'm going to share it with you, put your resources, whether it's your time or money, towards something, you want to know, hey... Not only do they have best practices, but this is actually going to do something for me. And 97% of women ages 19 to 50 are not getting enough vitamin D from their diet. It's hard to do. And I like to get as much as I can from my diet, but that is why I take a multivitamin. And Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus was shown to increase vitamin D levels by 43% in a clinical study. The other thing is they take nine key nutrients in two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption. So I think one of the things is, is like, oh, is it an empty stomach? Is it a full stomach? Well, because they, the way that they've done these capital, capsules, it's dental on an empty stomach. And at the end, you get this nice little minty essence in every bottle. So for a lot of people, sometimes these are the things that keep them from taking multis and making it easy and being able to enjoy it, whether it's timing or I don't like the after burps. And the other thing about it is ritual multivitamins are vegan. They're non-GMO project verified, gluten and major allergen free, and they are certified B Corp. And like I said earlier, everything is made traceable and they have a wonderful offer for you today. So all you have to do, you don't have any more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. You'll get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash Gabby. If you want to start your ritual, or you can add the Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today, that's ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash Gabby for 25% off. This podcast is brought to you by Babbel. I don't know about you, but every time I travel, I kick myself that I haven't spent more time learning whatever language it is in the place that I'm visiting. It's like you want to connect with the people in a real way. Well, immersion, you know, that's the best way. But most of us can't move somewhere and, and you know live there and learn the language, even though that's number one. But number two is with Babbel. And the reason that is, is first of all, they have, it's really quick. They've got 10-minute lessons, and but they're handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. But what I love about it is it's designed by real people for real conversations. It's like, listen, we all want to know like, Talk about food and directions and things like that. And Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real life situations and delivered with conversation-based teaching. So you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. And that's the other thing I love is just combining that because you think, okay, maybe using a trip that you have planned or getting together with family somewhere, using that as your motivation to get going. And you don't have to pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that maybe don't really even help you, you know, speak a new language. In fact, studies show, there was one study, they did studies at Yale, Michigan State, that Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours, that's nothing, is equivalent to a full semester at college. They've got over 16 million subscribers sold, plus 
All of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. So here's the incredible offer. For a special limited-time deal for our listeners right now, you can get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash Gabby. So to get 50% off at babbel.com slash Gabby, that's Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Gabby. Some rules and restrictions may apply. There's a lot of prongs to to this this device. So, you know, we'll get into the sleep component because that seems to be the king and the king and the king for you guys is really talking about the sleep. And I'll be honest, I'm not a great sleeper. You're one of many. Yeah. What is it? Uh, nine out of 10 uh, Americans, what, what do you say? Struggle with sleep, sleep right now, and thir- yeah. What do you say? 30% have a sleep? Uh, Diagnosed sleep disorder. Right. And I think half of the Americans who struggle with sleep are actually medicating or self-medicating or taking a prescription medication for sleep. Yeah. I just... You know, it's one of those things where it, you talk about safety, and then maybe if you're raised a certain way, and then, um, uh, and I think we live in a way that is not conducive for sleep, right? We're over caffeinated mm-hmm. the way we eat, then we're on our screens, overstimulated, it, it, thoroughly beyond. overstimulated. And, and you know, it's interesting when I when I learned about uh, the Apollo, I thought about this for a second because sometimes I'm a person who's like, we'll just turn off the electricity and go outside, and I live with somebody who. You know, I, I joke a lot of times that Laird is like a highly sophisticated kind of caveman. He has both elements happening all the time, very philosophical, well-read. But like, you know, it's the lights, it's the sun's going down. Like we should start preparing for sleep, you know. Mm. But I realize that we we live in a different world. And the world it has changed quite a bit, especially in the last, let's say, since 2008, 2007, with, given all the developments that we have technologically, and that this is almost a necessary response to the world that we are living in. Absolutely. Like, there's no way around it. So I, I really appreciate the fact, um, rather than bucket and say like, well, people should just put their stuff down and go to bed and do all these things. It's like realizing we, and, and I, you've said this quite a bit in a lot of the things I've read, that we are not living in our natural selves mm-hmm. and naturally. And this seems like almost an opportunity to say, okay, well, if you're going to do that, let's see if we can help you and help you rest. And and I did, I wore, um, I had an opportunity, I went away and then I had an opportunity to wear the device for several days in a row and my sleep was better. Mm. I will say that I experienced personally a deeper, more restful sleep because I never wake up groggy because mm. I never go down, mm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And a few days I was like, oh, I feel a little groggy, which meant I actually probably got deeper rest. So I, I did notice and it was, very easy to use. I know more isn't more. Like I was like, you don't have to turn it up, you know, cause you have several programs. Like mm-hmm. I would use, I used it for after my workout for the recovery. I did use the focus. And then I was really keen on the, the idea mm-hmm. of sleeping and unwinding. But, you know, I, I, I really had to like almost come to peace with the fact that that we maybe we need things like the Apollo in our world because maybe there's no going back. And that we see people, they're more stressed out than ever. And it's this weird other thing too, where maybe it's an opportunity weirdly with, and the conversation around the psychedelics simultaneously is that we've had enough genuinely pretty safe time. Mm -hmm. Let's say Vietnam war was, you know, one of the last kind of war 
wars. Then you had the eighties, you had Iraq, but we have had kind of more time, which has also made us more nutty. Mm -hmm. Everybody's triggered, triggered and traumatized about everything. So we haven't had any, a lot of real threats, but what it has done for me is I thought, oh, but this is why we can have the conversation about the psychedelics again. Mm -hmm. Because if everyone's so flipped out that maybe we're gonna get this chance to go back and use this natural medicine to help whatever we're gonna be managing now from here on out. So I feel like it's this dual thing of, okay, we're gonna have wearables like the Apollo, but now you're getting to say, hey, this is also an option for you with these psychedelics because people are really struggling. Oh yeah. Before, you know, my generation is like, you suck it up. Right. I, what did I do? My reaction Same was actually growing up. high performance, right? Right. Like that's the one way some, yeah. everyone else, okay, some people they drink, they're alcoholics. Right. Like it, but now everyone's just like, I'm triggered. Right. It's like, oh my gosh, I, all I said was the word, you know, purple and you're triggered. Okay. But it's, very but, real, it's yeah. but what's kind of great, if we look at the upside, is now I could use treatments like you guys have done research now, measured research and MAPS is doing it. And and so it's kind of this interesting mixed bag of like, oh, this is, this is kind of amazing that we have this opportunity to, to heal. Mm -hmm. I wish I had known about it before I had children. I'll be honest with you, because I know for a fact I passed on. Mm. I can see it in some of my, I have three daughters and I can see some, I'm like, oh, that's not your problem. That mm. was one of my problems. That's very insightful of you. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. when you're sitting here talking about like the opportunity to break or switch those epigenetics and maybe break the not. the cycle. Yeah. I mean, we broke the cycle in the best ways that we could yeah. here, but this idea of actually changing on a cellular, on a DNA level mm -hmm. and not passing on your crap to mm -hmm. the next I mean, think how lucky you're going to be if you choose to have children. You guys are like way ahead of the program. Your kids will come out and be like sunshine and roses and isn't, you know. Your lips no, to they God's can, ears. No, but they can make their own, whatever their own things will be, but they don't yeah. have to get the loads and the loads from all the groups before. So I, I was thinking about that, but, but I think the same thing that makes us that we need the Apollo now is the same reason why we are talking about the psychedelics. Absolutely. And, and it's a convergence. There's a mm -hmm. convergence happening between Eastern medicine, tribal right. medicine, Western medicine, technology, plants, right? Everything's just coming together because we are facing a very critical time in humanity where if we don't figure out how to heal more effectively, more efficiently, and really empower each human being on the face of this earth to self-heal, yeah. which is what all the Eastern tribal disciplines have always described healing as about, but what even Hippocrates said healing comes from within the one seeking to be healed, not from the outside, not from the medicine, not from the doctor, comes from within each of us. If we don't empower people to do that relatively soon, we're not only going to run out of money to pay for everybody's healthcare, but we are literally going to destroy ourselves yeah. and, and create the planet, make a planet that's inhospitable for us. Because, very famous saying, which I'm sure you know, hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And to the contrary, healed people, healed people. Yeah. And we all have the capacity for both. And we all have both. We all have parts of us that are hurting and we have parts of us that are healed. And there's an incredible opportunity that is that is really rising to the surface. And I think the pandemic really drove it home, which is that we are really, really stressed. We are really overwhelmed, overstimulated. And that we don't, we were not taught effectively the tools, like what you were talking about earlier, like how to channel 
rage in, and frustration and anxiety into athletic, extreme mm-hmm. athletic performance, which is healing in and of itself. We're, most of us aren't taught how to do that anymore. We're not taught how to breathe. No. We're not taught how to meditate in school. We're not taught how to do any of these things and, and, and how to think properly about how to sift through what is meaningful to us and what's true and useful to us and what's not. And so why would we expect, a, like, why would you expect a child to be able to understand how to concentrate for an extended period of time on something that bores the crap out of them yeah. if we've never taught them how to do it? Mm-hmm. We're not born with that ability. It takes practice. Yeah. Like we, we all, we're born with the ability to practice focus and concentration, yeah. but we're not born with the ability to spend a whole bunch of time focusing on something that really bores us for a long period of time, just like we're not born with the ability to deal with incredible amounts of incoming overstimulation. Yeah. And so we have to remember to practice. We have to remember to, that there are skill sets out there like mindfulness, which is not weird or woo-woo or whatever you people like to call it. It's like a, it's really just being present with your feelings, being present with what's coming in and not judging it, yeah. right? Mindful presentness is really just feel. Allow yourself to feel your feelings without judgment. We are literally feeling machines. Yeah. Well, the know? meaning maker upstairs, you know, is the brain is always trying to get everything in its box. And mm-hmm. then, you know, it's all of that. Now, you, uh, one thing you said that I really appreciated was you talked about if we can do that, then our capacity for empathy increases greatly. Mm-hmm. And maybe because in a way, it's and that's like, one of our most healing skills. Yeah. Well, because so many of the things that make us aggravated, I think, are that whole thing that we make up in ourselves about everything and everyone around us and what's happening to us. Mm-hmm. It's not happening to us, you know? And so I, 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 maybe you could just sort of talk about this, the sort of the healthier or the better we feel that then we have that opportunity to be empathetic. Because otherwise we don't really. Then we are in maybe victim mentality or we're too stressed out and yeah, I mean it's it's actually quite simple. I, I again, I say this I say this as in quite simple as in I never learned this in school and I wish I had, but I learned it afterwards just from working with with people who were suffering with illness because when you work with people directly, it it kind of just like gets thrown in your face that people don't feel safe. That's it. People don't feel safe. We they don't feel safe to feel their own feelings because oftentimes we're told when we're kids, don't express that emotion. That's not acceptable. Don't feel sad, suck it up, right? Mm-hmm. Don't express anger. Other people don't like that. You're scaring them, right? Things like that. W- women are taught to be not masculine and overly feminine, and we have different descriptions and yeah. things about that. Men are taught to be insensitive jerks that are focused on, for the most part, just masculine dominant traits because mm-hmm. being sensitive means you're whatever. You know, you're not, you're not man enough. Right? You know, and, I have said this many times on the show. Every I'm, I've met a lot of hyper-masculine men, and what they all have in common is uh, uber f- f- amounts of, of uh, sensitivity mm-hmm. because their ability, their capacity for protection and care and helpfulness is is like on the opposite spectrum of this hyper-masculinity too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an interesting thing that they don't teach young men, hey, listen— have your feelings and it's okay to, if you need to throw rocks, you know, off the side of the mountain because you have testosterone and it feels good to like hit a little target across the way. Who knows, right? right? It's not an either or. So you're saying that maybe because we don't have good guides, we don't have any more like ceremonies of coming of age. We don't sort of have these things or taught where they are appropriate. 
that it's just, we're, we're like a hodgepodge of hysteria a little bit. To some extent. And we're also just haven't learned, you know, we, we, what we're taught is if we're not taught the coping strategies, the healthy adaptation strategies, Mm -hmm. like you just kind of alluded to, like the meditation, the breathing and how important that is, how to control our attention, for instance, one of the most critically important skills we have. If we're not taught that young, it's harder to learn it when you're older. And it can be learned at any time, but it's just trickier because we entrain things very tightly in our brains and practice makes mastery, right? So if so, it's really important to teach this stuff to kids young. But if we don't, then we just figure it out on our own based on what we experience around us. Mm-hmm. So that's from what we see our parents do, what we see our friends do, what we see people do on TV, in the neighborhood, community, the presidents, whatever. Did you have to bring that into it? I mean, they're role models for a lot of people, even though they're not necessarily the best role models. They're in positions of power. And there's a certain, and I, I mean, it, it's a little bit enraging to me that they're, I mean, maybe a lot, a little bit's an understatement, but just the idea that we have people that we are setting up as role models in society that aren't actually responsible role models yeah. because they don't understand the most important thing about being a role model is that people emulate you, Yeah. right? And if you're going to be a source of inspiration that people are going to emulate, you better think really fucking carefully yeah. about what you do. You got to hold the line too. You know, like I felt, I've experienced this honestly the most as a coach and a parent which there have been times where with my kids, I'm like, I have a grown daughter and I'm like, she's acting and she's a young, and when she was a young adult acting kind of, you know, in my mind, not great. I'm like, I don't want to talk to her. And a little voice would come up and be like, oh yeah, and you're the adult, mm-hmm. which is like, you call and you go, hey, I love you and I hope you're great. You know what I mean? Like, I think people also have to understand that sometimes not every feeling has to be, you know, exactly how we feel deep in every cell of our body but we're trying to live a certain way mm-hmm. and we're trying to move in this direction. And so what's the behavior that's going to reinforce representing that? So I think there is a delineation. I, you know, I'm curious if someone, let's say they're older and they do go through um, maybe a, kind of a psychedelic treatment, is there conversations around new practices to implement for this type of perspective and living? Absolutely. That's like the core of our conversations. It is. Yeah, we start it. We start it from like the first moment when oh. we meet, which is the prep. What we call preparation, mm-hmm. um, and then that continues. That it's not usually. It sometimes it's brought into the actual treatment uh, session, but it's especially in, it brought in afterwards, which is called integration. Mm. It's making more whole, right. right? Because ultimately, I don't know if you're familiar with Gabor Mate. Um, oh, love, love him. Yeah, incredible, incredible work. And and he works with some really tough people like me. And he's also an addiction physician and, and a trauma physician and developed this, this incredible technique called compassionate inquiry. Mm-hmm. Going back to what you were saying earlier, yeah. it's all about feeling safe enough to self-inquire, right? If we're taught when we're kids that there's something wrong with us for feeling the way we feel, why would we feel safe enough to dive into that. Mm -hmm. It's wrong. It seems uncomfortable, unpleasant, not accepted. And then we actually, as we go on believing that about ourselves, that it's not okay to feel the way we feel and we keep feeling it, then we start to think, hey, what's wrong with me that I'm feeling this way even though I'm not supposed to feel this way? That is very destructive to us because 
it creates a fractured self. And that's what Gabor Mate talks about, right? And then your fractured self is, there are certain parts of me that are not acceptable to the world, which means that they're wrong, which means that there's certain parts of me that are wrong and I'm not allowed to feel, which means I repress and I shun them and I, and I shame them. And that can happen as young as one year old. Yeah. And if that, just by you know, us trying to express whatever emotion and having somebody, uh, you know, a parent or someone come up to us and say, no, you're not allowed to express that or, or reprimanding or disciplining us in a way that's not compassionate. And once you fracture your sense of self, which I would say is basically happened to every, almost every human being at some point in our yeah, young lives. I've met a few that you're like, huh, I wonder what that would feel like. Yeah. You know, where they feel pretty good and whole, you know, yeah. I, but not many. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, and, it, and there, and a lot of people have coped with it because they're, yeah. you can, you can adapt to this, right? This is the, I think the overarching message that I want to make sure everybody takes away from this is what the science is telling us, what the, the most exciting neuroscience and, and research is telling us from the work of psychedelics and the work we're doing with Apollo is you can change your future. Mm. And by, un, by, by being more present, you can change your future. And that is incredibly empowering. But, well, I should say, not but, but at the, at the same time, yeah. it requires the repair of these fractures. It, we cannot heal with a fractured self. We actually have to bandage it and we have to bring, you know, bring the edges together of the wound. We have to, we have to put traction on the bone, make sure we, you know, when we repair a broken bone, you don't just put a cast on right away. You actually make sure it's fit together first and then you put the cast on so it heals properly without as much of a scar. It's no different for emotional wounds. If we don't take care of emotional wounds, we don't, for example, teach people how to grieve loss. Mm. And what happens? You store that loss and you actually resist it. And that causes a tremendous amount of suffering and prolonged pain. So by teaching people some of these skills and helping support each other through the process, which is not something you require me for. That's literally something any human being can do for any other human being just by being present and listening non-judgmentally to them. You don't need to go to medical school for that part. Um, that helps repair the fracture. Once you repair the fracture, and then you realize, hey, I'm actually more, I feel more whole, and that's the integration work. So the preparation work is, hey, maybe there's some stuff that fractured you, mm -hmm. right? You're coming to me for a reason. Let's talk about that. Oh, let's, un let's unearth that stuff that's going on underneath that brought you here. Then we create a safe relationship where that fracture is is representative of a distrust in self. That's the biggest damage that trauma does to us when we're not supported afterwards. It, the fracture of that trauma creates self-distrust. Mm -hmm. And if I have distrusted myself for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, I might not remember what it feels like to trust. And this, and this not only shows up emotionally, but you talk about how this can really, if you can get this healed, in performance where it isn't that constant self-doubt and questioning, which is all part of being a human being mm -hmm. on some level. The human condition. It just yeah. is, you know, but you've learned how to like live with it mm -hmm. and go like, oh, there she or he is and that's right. good and that keeps me on my toes right. or, you know, and it makes me ask questions. But I think that that's the other thing I, I, I'm interested in, like what motivates people? Some people want to be healed. Some people are like, I want to perform better. Like whatever it takes, it's understanding it's all connected. Mm -hmm. It's the same reason still why you want to get to sleep. It's right. like it all is part part of, you know, this whole- Part of the whole. Whole. Now, what if you have like a couple um, and one couple sort of takes this on and one couple, 
Um, like one member of a couple. Yes, one part of the couple is like, oh, I'm reluctant or um, I, I find that must be an interesting dynamic to help the person who's gone through the treatments maybe navigate when they get mm. back into that into that <laughs> dynamic. It can be challenging. It's not always challenging. <laughs> Do you get blamed for divorces? I'm sure. <laughs> blame? Um, yeah. It's not usually a lot of blame, but there is, uh, I mean, it does happen. Of course. You know, I think the goal is step away from blame and step into self-accountability and responsibility, <laughs> right? Because usually what's going to happen is going to happen, but when we resist what what is, yeah. we create suffering. Sure. Going back to the Buddhist stuff, right? Yeah. Again, this isn't new. Yeah, when we fight reality, it's like... What is, is. Oh, yeah, I know. It's so hard to take, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's like, what did he say? When you say should, you've just left reality. Right. Right. Except, except <laughs> in one case that I found, which is I really, should have been there. <laughs> nope. Nope. You're leaving reality there. There's there's a different one. There's okay. one that actually came came comes to people with ketamine experiences in particular. Okay. That I think is really wise. And it is everything is as it should be. Amen. And then that, that's like what I call the only effective use of that word. That's right. That's appropriate. Everything is as it should be. And once we start to accept that, all of a sudden, we don't resist what is. If we only have, think about it as, again, resource allocation, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're an athlete. You get resource allocation. You know how to dedicate your resources in a certain way so that you can prioritize performance when you need to, right? Mm -hmm. This is a resource allocation problem. If we only have 100% of our attention to spend focusing on anything or attention or energy, whatever you want to call it, we only have 100% of it at any moment to focus on anything we're doing. If we spend, just as an example, 50% of that time and attention and energy focusing on not accepting things as they are because we wish or want them to be some other way, we are giving away 50% of our power. Yeah. And you, you talk a lot about paying attention to what you can control and not putting that energy in, into what you cannot control. Exactly, which is this exact conversation. But right? you have people all the time who think, well, I, I probably could bend that my way. <laughs> Don't you think? You, I've met well, those people. Well, you can, <laughs> No, but, but you can't change the past. <laughs> well, that's no joke. Right? Well, you it's cannot not, it's change. It's not even here anymore. That's what I mean. I but know, we still crazy. think people still think they can. People still are like, how could that have happened to me? Mm. Why did that, you know? And, and we start to ask these questions like, did that really happen? Is that really, is that really what happened? Let's reevaluate, let's reevaluate, let's reevaluate. What could I have done better? But of course, some of these questions are important because we want to learn from our mistakes. Sure. It's absolutely important to learn from mistakes, but there's a lot of shame and guilt and, and around failure and, yeah. and mistakes. And if we focus on that, if we focus on the regrets, for instance, we all have them, but if we acknowledge them and say, hey, I understand that I have the sentiment toward this regret of what I think I could have done better. And there's some guilt and shame around that. There's a process by which we can acknowledge it, not just dismiss it, but acknowledge it and say, okay, I see that regret. I see that guilt and shame. I'm present with it, but it's not true and useful to me right now. And I've learned what I can from it. Then we can, we can grieve the loss and we can allow it to pass. Yeah. And then we bring ourselves back to the present and then we can express gratitude for grieving the loss and what we've learned from it rather than thinking, man, what the hell is wrong with me that I didn't do better? Like, yeah. you know, and those kinds of thoughts are what 
pull us back into the past or I should have done things differently. Right, they paralyze you. Not only do they take time and space, they take energy away from the redirection of the other. I'm curious. Well, and we can't control it. So to the, to yeah. your so to your point, we can't control it. And so if we only have 100% of our attention to pay to anything in any given day and we spend 50% of that thinking about changing the past or regrets from the past that we can't control, we will feel, you better believe, you, you will feel out of control 50% of the time or yeah. more. And so the antidote, and that's anxiety. That is the modern definition of anxiety. It's not good or bad. It's just feeling out of control. It's mm-hmm. feeling uncertainty. It's that amygdala going off again saying, hey, there's uncertainty here. There's uncertainty here. You're not necessarily safe if there's uncertainty here. So let's stay on guard. Yeah. And so the antidote is all of the techniques that remind us that we're in control in any moment which there's really six techniques. There's four that you can do, in, or really four you can do in any moment, any time, and then there's six total. There are intentional breath, intentional movement, intentional listening or singing, producing or listening to sound, and intentional touch. And then the other two that are kind of not that you can do in any moment, but that are really important are intentional nourishment, what, choosing thoughtfully what we put into our bodies to feed ourselves, and sleep. And those are the really like the six pillars of control. And we can do the first four are really critical because in any moment we can move, we can choose to breathe, we can choose to touch ourselves or receive or give touch or receive touch from another, and we can sing or listen. And if we practice doing those things and focusing our attention on those things mm-hmm. instead of focusing on things we can't control, we feel in control more of the time. Yeah. Surprise. Then we feel safe. Then we our tunnel vision from feeling out of control all of a sudden widens and all of a sudden you're like oh look at all these opportunities i had i didn't even realize were there at first you feel trapped no more trapped literally by just changing your perspective and so this is why apollo is so interesting and why these techniques are interesting because apollo is the first wearable touch therapy that uses touch as an output that you can control at any moment and then that restores your autonomy and your sovereignty and your agency in any moment and you know what's funny is I feel like when we when we get this again everything I've figured out as a practice we can have all the information in the world and if you don't have a practice and you were talking about how the Apollo can sort of give you a power to put you in these states of mind the other day it was the end of the day it was close to five o'clock and right after five o'clock is what's for dinner by the way which I don't care who you are if you're the person who that sort of falls on um. You know, you start going like, oh, what's for dinner, you know? Um, (laughs) But we had a meeting. And so I put it on, um, I did put it on focus because I I felt like, could I be focused without having to ramp up? Right. And then as soon as I started, um, as soon as dinner was done, I put it on a, I did a longer protocol for the sleep. I did the two hour Mm because you have shorter Mm -hmm. blocks. And so I I really, I appreciate that you have kind of these, this different menu because we do have different things. I, like I said, I, I've used the recovery for right after workout, mm-hmm. things like that. So if someone is listening to this, maybe they're going to do a little more research before if they if they felt like it was necessary or something that would really, they could benefit doing, um, a, you know, a controlled psychedelic treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, for that kind of stuff, we could direct them what would be the best places for them to find the best people? I know maps is a is a good tool, but in your for you, what what groups do you like? Because this is a very sensitive, you know, so it's easy for you because you're you have your you're in it. Mm-hmm. But if someone's sitting in Kansas, let's say, and they think, oh, this is something maybe I would like to explore, what would be at least a starting point? 
Yeah, it's tricky. Okay. You know, I think, again, this is, there's not a lot of providers out there who okay. are trained to do this work well. So, and there's not a lot of trainings for licensed providers. That's exactly why we were just literally have, okay. offering this in-body life training with Lauren Taus, who's an expert uh, clinician and therapist at Topanga Commune, because okay. these trainings are few and far between. And me- most of the people nationwide who offer psychedelic medicine are not licensed providers, and they have not been through any training other than their own experiences, which is a little bit dangerous. So, what's the is the question to ask? Are you a licensed provider, or is there a bigger question that's more important than that? So, I think I'll give you well, I'll give you a couple a couple organizations to start because I think, but but I think to the point, this is what inspired us to develop Apollo because number one, it's hard to get access to safe psychedelic care, yeah, and it's hard to into to to get access to the pathway to healing that is agreed upon for mental health because no one is agreeing right now. And there's a lot of different options, but there's not a lot of consistency around what is the best path for any given person. And so psychedelics are not accessible for everyone. They can work well for certain people with certain illnesses, very well, like PTSD and depression in particular. Anxiety is still on the fence if that's your primary issue. But so, you know, we have to be a little bit cautious, but the, the, you know, the, the it's hard to find providers. So the, the sites that, that we recommend are that, uh, ketamine psychotherapy associates, they have a list of refer providers that you can look at and they have a whole big list under referrals. That's really great. And that was started by Dr. Phil Wolfson, who is one of the leaders in the ketamine assisted therapy movement. One of the people who founded ketamine assisted therapy, and he's the author, uh, author of the ketamine papers, which is the most famous book, current books on ketamine therapy and the evidence for why it works for mental illness. And another website that's really great is psychedelic.support that was started by uh, Allison Fiducia and her partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually just published a paper together that came out a couple weeks ago, which is summarizing effectively a, an evidence-based proposal for the gold standard best practices for psychedelic-assisted therapy. So people can actually understand that there is scientific evidence for how to do this and that we, you can look at it any way you want, Across the board, doesn't matter whether you're looking at the use of SSRI antidepressants or antipsychotics or psychedelics, psychotherapy makes them work better. So we should not be administering these techniques without Without the proper psychotherapy and container. So I think the best advice I can give anybody who wants to engage in these practices is that is to find a good therapist. Mm -hmm. You know, find a good therapist that you can trust that you can build a trusting relationship with because ultimately it doesn't matter if you have a diagnosis, what your diagnosis is. It doesn't matter what your diagnosis is and it doesn't matter if you even have a diagnosis at all. What matters is that, that we are traumatized as human beings. And I think, don't you think we could change that conversation too and make that part of what being a human being is? You know, I've said this many times too, where it's like, hey, this is too also part of it. People are like, I don't feel happy. I feel like, it's like, yeah, we we are these organic beings and our world was meant to be very harsh and scary at times and savage. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the critters, mm-hmm. the way they walk around. Mm-hmm. And maybe even when we get part of the healing, also getting a relationship with when you're like, oh man, this is brutal. Mm-hmm. When that shows up, I think can be helpful. Incredibly helpful. Yeah. And we need to destigmatize that. We need to make yeah. sure that people understand that having had challenges that we perceived as threatening that we can we call trauma is not make you less of a human being 
It doesn't make you a victim and it doesn't make you somebody who can't trust yourself. But that is ultimately where we're at right now. And that's what yeah. we're trying to heal. And so the reason why the most important thing to have is a good therapist, not a medicine experience, but a good therapist yeah. as number one is, be, and, it, and the credentials of that person, ideally they're licensed, but they don't necessarily have, doesn't, the licensure level doesn't necessarily matter. I really like psychologists because they have a wide breadth and depth of expertise. But um, in general, I've worked with a lot of great social workers and a lot of great um, marriage and family therapists. And, mm -hmm. and regardless, I think the main thing is that if you think about trauma, we really want to break it down simply. If we think about what trauma does to us, and it, that trauma makes us distrust ourselves, which means we're distrusting our intuition, meaning we don't necessarily remember what it feels like to truly trust what's coming from in here, then when we build a trusting relationship with a therapist or a healthcare provider, that trusting relationship helps us remember, like that trusting relationship is in and of itself psychedelic, it's mind expanding. And that helps us to remember the feeling of trust, which we might've forgotten. Yeah. And if we can remember what it feels like to trust somebody else with our deepest, darkest secrets, yeah. then we can remember what it feels like to trust ourselves. And then we have a target. We have a bullseye mm. to aim for. If you don't know where you're aiming, where yeah. are you going to go? Yeah, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Yeah. Right there. So there has to be a, there has to be a target and people need targets. People are goal directed individuals. Yeah. If you don't give them a target, we will be aimless and we will struggle. Yeah. And and all animals are like that, but unlike other animals, we have a choice and they they don't. They're yeah. they're surviving doing their thing and we actually have the choice to say I'm going to make a decision that puts my survival in jeopardy or I could do something else and you know. Yeah, it's called scrolling. Right. I mean, holy cow. You know what I mean? Talk about aimless. You're right. like, I did even have a target and then somehow I scrolled it away. So, yeah, somehow I opened my phone and now I've totally <laughs> I forgot what I was going on. Do. And that's the other thing is the fact that we get everything easier and easier and more convenient. This is only going to make everybody more stressed out. We, right. Well, I mean, there's just to more some extent. Well, there's more room. Cause, cause, and there's more stimulation. Well, there's that's more it. Stuff. And then, like, oh, I don't even have to go out to get my food. Do I have to? I don't have to interact with another human. Just, right. who, you know, eats, shows up. Like, it's all that, too. Mm -hmm. And you can, you, my kids, I watch them. They can, some of them can talk to their friends on the phone. And I'm like, when they talk on the phone, I'm like, all day long, go for it. Yeah. Because if they're not texting, like they're communicating, mm -hmm. it's really important. So, the Apollo is a is a very safe option, like we talked about. You did mention something, um, the the four pillars, mm. self-gratitude, self-forgiveness, self-compassion, and self-love. Mm -hmm. And this, you said, comes from a South American tribal medicine. Mm -hmm. This just felt important to mention because whether we're going to do a, a journey or we're going to see a therapist or going to wear an Apollo, it just was an important reminder to people. For sure. And, yeah. you know, gratitude, be mm -hmm. grateful for yourself and forgive yourself. And yeah, and to direct some of that energy that we give so readily to other people sort of back inward. Oh, yeah. You know, even even though we're taught that maybe maybe that's indulgent or yeah. that we're not supposed to give that to ourselves or just give it only to everyone else, but that's- Try being a mother. Right, right. It's like, oh, I, I say, listen, I am selfish with certain real estate because if I'm going to be here for all you all, I'm going to protect this real estate. Like even if yeah. it's as big as this paper, mm -hmm. because it's the only way you can, to, can get it done. So it's not just taking that negative, like you say, twist off of, uh, I, you know what, I'm going to figure out what I, what's going to make me feel good and what's right and good for me. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And and those and those practices come from the Shipibo tribal culture, which are considered to be, for the most part, one of the oldest medicine tradition, medical medical com, uh, community traditions of South America and Peru, mm. and um, the medicine people. And from studying their traditions, it's very interesting because when you ask the shamans what they're treating, what they're treating yeah. when and they don't speak English for the most part, when you ask them what, what are you treating when you do your medicine work, say we're treating trauma. Yeah, same. Crazy. Isn't that wild? Yeah. And so we think and, we're so smart, huh? Yeah. Like, yeah, they've already they, <laughs> they already know. They're like, they don't need technology. They've already figured out. And and on top of that, when you when you look at their drawings. When you look at the drawings of what they see in their psychedelic experiences with the plants, they're interwoven snakes in a double helix. Yeah. That's what's changing. That's mm-hmm. what they believe they're influencing. What's that? Through us, it's DNA. And, and uh, Jeremy Narby, famous anthropologist, wrote The Cosmic Serpent, which is one of my favorite books, where he went down to the Amazon and studied this topic and did a, like a Western Eastern tribal comparison across, it was like hundreds of indigenous cultures and they all use the same symbology mm-hmm. and they've never talked and they've never exchanged information. So there's something going on yeah. underneath the surface that's really interesting. And, and a lot of it has to do with, with safety. And then how do we cultivate that sense of trust and safety in ourselves? And so the four pillars I really like, there's a similar examples of them in lots of other cultures, but in Shipibo culture, and again, this is sort of like, I've, I'm not going to give this, this true, I'm not going to honor this completely because I don't speak their language, but sure. in my interpretation of it, it's these are the, and how I was taught, these are the four pillars of self-trust, which is repairing the trauma. If trauma fractures trust in ourselves, then by practicing the four pillars, we repair that trust. And we repair that trust by showing ourselves gratitude for things, simple things, like anything. The more you express gratitude for yourself, believe it or not, the more things you find to be grateful for. Yeah. What does that do? It makes you feel graceful, gracious, right? It improves the grace in our every moment of our lives. And then that helps us to find opportunities to forgive ourselves for the mistakes that we've made in the past, mm-hmm. which then helps us realize that we're always going to make mistakes because we're fallible human beings. So we better be compassionate for ourselves yeah. and not be impatient and rush. Because if we're impatient and rush, then you know we're going to make more mistakes and then we're going to have more to forgive ourselves for. So we got to be patient which is really the practice of self-compassion. And then all that culminates in unconditional self-love, yeah. which is just knowing deep down that we are worthy of love. And these are not techniques that you can just master and be done with. They're literally the techniques that guide our lifelong journey of creating the foundation of trust and then sustaining and maintaining it over time. Yeah. And you can do them as simply as just writing those words down you don't have to do anything else to start. And this is what we do with all of our clients because they're busy people. They have a lot to do. We're just like, hey, just keep these in your mind. Just write them down first thing in the morning. Just write those four words down, self-gratitude, self-forgiveness, self-compassion, self-love in order every morning and then the last thing before you go to bed. And it keeps it fresh in your mind so that when you're, to give you my one of my favorite examples, when you're feeling angry later that day, and normally you might get, a, you might say, like, oh, I'm not allowed to feel this way or I'm not supposed to feel this way or you start to sk- judge yourself for feeling angry or mm-hmm. judge the, the feeling itself, then perhaps if you remember self-gratitude, you can actually turn, turn it on its head and say, what if I was grateful for this anger? Yeah. And then what you realize is 
that if you are grateful for your anger, that anger has a tremendous amount of power, right? Anger is actually a source of a tremendous amount of our essence and our efficacy to get things done. Mm -hmm. And if we don't, and, and then by expressing gratitude for it and understanding that there's a lot of power in anger, we actually figure out how to get it out in constructive ways, like sports or mm -hmm. physical pursuits or any number of other things that we can do, but, but it's literally channeling or sublimating a negative, or what we consider to be a negative or unpleasant, uncomfortable emotion into something that is actually very productive and helpful and constructive. Mm -hmm. That is also a skill that requires practice, but, it, but gratitude is what channels it. If we judge ourselves for it, then we stifle the process yeah. of, of, channel of channeling into product productive outcomes and, and constructive outcomes. And it's, that's resistance. And if we accept it and we express gratitude for it, it transforms what was once something that we ran from or were upset by to something that is actually a source of power. Yeah, it's a tool. You're, a, you're literally explaining 75% of the way I get my day done. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, no, I'm not kidding. No, I'm, me too. I'm like bullying my way through my whole day. All totally in love, but I'm just bullying my way through using that... It's not a passive emotion. Mm -hmm. It is a charged emotion. Um, and it's just keeping that lid on it that it doesn't get misdirected because it is, it's almost like a heavy duty charge that then the wrong, your personal, you know, your partner comes in or a kid and you have to f switch mm -hmm. out of that quickly because it's a no, it's a no-go. Right. And what happens, let me ask you this, what happens when you don't let it out in in your, with oh, your then it comes out for real. And what it is, is it's fear generating mm. anger for protection that mm. I didn't get to sort of vent this charge. And, and, and honestly, listen, I'm probably a lazy person. Like I think humans in some way have a laziness. And so I, I feel like it's a way to use it to generate let go. There's, I have a lot of go in my life mm -hmm. and it was a way to say, here we go. Yeah. And we're to keep going. And so it's it's having a relationship with it and not looking at it as anger that we know, like what you're saying, not like someone's angry at me, but anger that's like you're ferocious to lean into everything you've got to get done, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and, and you nailed it, right? Like if we don't work with it, if we don't acknowledge it oh. and we repress it, what happens? It turns inward okay. on us and then it leaks and seeps out in all these weird, unpredictable ways and we're irritable and we're nasty and we're quick and like too quick with people. Sure, I'm going to fight short. in a parking lot for sure of our parking right. space. Yeah. Or we definitely get, in a marital spot. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Right. Or yeah, yeah. Or, or you're like, you know, yelling at people on the road or, oh, yeah. or oh, angry yeah. at work. And, and then mm. that is what causes all this damage in our lives yeah. because we are, we are, like you said, we're, you know, expressing something that actually, that's very powerful yeah. in a way that is not what, is not respectful. It's not respectful to us. By denying our own emotions and preventing ourselves from feeling, we are actually dishonoring ourselves. Yeah. Literally, we are dishonoring ourselves. I try to remind people, and again, I'm not overgeneralizing, but with females especially, you can still not be nice and be good. For sure. And it's getting the differentiation. It's like anger can be good. It may not be nice, whatever that means. And I really, it took me a long time to get into peace with that. Mm -hmm. And and to really accept like, 
of course, I'm going to help somebody and tell the truth and do the right thing. But I don't have to make everybody feel like, uh, you know, I'm bringing them flowers and cake for everything. You know what I mean? And it's, it's really getting a relationship with that. Mm-hmm. So Especially when we don't, they don't deserve it. Because well, not everybody deserves even, flowers and cake. It's not even like we're at work. Like everybody do their part, like whatever right. we're doing. My, Laird says to me sometimes, because he's very truthful with people. And I'm like, whoa. And he's like, no, this is loving. This is being loving because it's, it's like also being honest and open. And it's even the same thing with this sort of directness or anger, mm-hmm. which is like, no, this is loving because I'm actually showing you who I really am. Right. And um, I think we're taught to feel really uncomfortable with that, you yeah. know, or, or ashamed of it or what have you. Well, we're certainly, whatever we're taught about it, we are certainly taught to overthink it. Oh, yeah. Rather than feel it. Yeah. Because then you, that's when you get, do you think that's okay? You know, at the end? Right. If, if and we that's question, okay, we doubt, you know, we self doubt. <laughs> yeah, sure. Right, rather than just like I, I think that's actually one of the things that really resonated has been resonating with me lately it's from the work we do is that psychedelic medicines and thing tools like Apollo, soothing touch, mm-hmm. somatic techniques, movement they unlock our ability to feel again mm-hmm. and to feel safe enough to feel feelings. Yeah, and that is how we heal yeah. ourselves because when you actually allow your, it's like grieving a loss right when you actually it's painful sometimes but when you actually take the time to do it usually the unpleasantness doesn't last very long Mm-mm. it kind of gets addressed and then it kind of fizzles out yeah. and goes away but when we hang on to it and resist it it can last basically for our entire lives forever yeah so how do we so how do we make sure to to know and re- constantly remind ourselves that our awareness of these feelings is actually a superpower. Maybe, maybe access and it unlocks potential, right? It literally is like the key. Yeah. Put in the door, unlock your potential yeah. to make different choices, yeah. to see different opportunities, and to be a better person, to be a better version of yourself. And the and and these are everything that we're talking about the psychedelics the apollo these these techniques are all just tools that help get us there quicker and make it a little more comfortable palatable but it really comes down to in a lot of ways allowing ourselves to feel and connect with that non-judgmentally before we start thinking and the thinking's important we got to think yeah, thinking's important but i go back to something that was like an ancient i think it was from aristotle it's like way way back which was like um, you probably know this, the cogito ergo sum. Mm-hmm. This is back when mm-hmm. we were trying to figure out what does it mean to be human. Latin for, I think, therefore I am, right? And that set the foundation of yeah. humanity, human, human thought. It was, that changed everything. That was, that was like, it was a way for us to understand ourselves at the time, but it was also a way for us to, I think, separate ourselves from nature mm-hmm. because we think and most of the other things in nature we don't think thinks. Right. We but activate that ego and we're on the road, right? <laughs> right. And I think there's a big fallacy there, which yeah. is it puts thinking first. Mm-hmm. It associates the the understanding of thinking with our identity, which is not all we are. It also dehumanizes the rest of the world, which is also alive and conscious and part of our life. And it has to be. Obviously, we wouldn't be here without it. Right, we're all part of the continuous continuous life experience together, and so what I would offer as an alternative, if we're going to talk about remodeling or reshaping the way we describe ourselves and our lives, why not say "amo ergo sum"? I love, therefore I am. Mm. That's inclusive of everything because everything is made of love. Everything is 
love. Love is like the universal human language, but not just human, but of earth, of everything on the earth. And it's non-exclusive, but it also puts love as a feeling before thinking. Yeah. And that is more, much, so much more of what we are is love than cognitive thought. The thought is important. The critical thinking is important. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm a, I'm a man of science. So like critical thinking and hypothesizing and questioning, that's like my favorite thing to do. That's what leads to discovery. But it only comes after now, now that I've learned what I've learned, it only comes after I self-inquire of like, what am I really feeling right now? Mm-hmm. Right? What is that? And what is that trying to tell me without judging it? If I'm thinking too much, then I'm feeling it. And I'm like, oh, is it okay to feel that way? I'm missing the point of the feeling. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's, one, it's our beautiful guide too. It really is. So Dr. Dave, I, I want to uh, just finish up with a couple things. Why did you call the device Apollo? Oh, that's a, that's a good story. So there were a lot of names for this technology before it was called Apollo. We're going we're gonna to call it Increase Your Fine Lines. Increase Your Fine Lines. Because, you know, <laughs> we, we want people, people... Wait, decrease or increase? No, decrease. Sorry. <laughs> Make yourself more beautiful. Yeah, right. No, but yeah. really, why? I mean, there were, so there was a lot of names. There's a lot of names. Um, originally, at the university, we had like code names for it. Sure. It was like code oh. name purr because it kind of feels like a purring cat on your body. It does. Kind of like, like, you know, wearable hugs, you know, things like that. Um, we called it Emoto originally. It was the very first name that I came up with because I thought, I'm going to mess up his name, but Dr. Emoto was a very famous Japanese professor mm-hmm. who has done some controversial work, but one of the interesting things that he found was that water stores sure. energy and somatics, right? Mm-hmm. And that if you put vibration into, into pictures water. pictures and such, right? The, right. I love you, I hate you, rock and roll versus right. classical. Yeah, all, all that, that interesting incredible, stuff. Incredible, beautiful photos. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. And, it, and it all, a lot of that came from his work. Mm-hmm. And the, and this is vibration plus emotion, so we called it Emoto. That reminded too many people of Italian motor car company, motorcycle companies. So that was next. And then uh, we were sitting at dinner one night in Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where we founded the technology, where the company's still headquartered. And we were trying to figure out for weeks a different name that made more sense. And we went through literally uh, everything we could possibly think of, and um, which was a lot of names, like hundreds. Could you get... Could you get into a fight with your wife over this kind of stuff? Because it's, I'm always, I work with my you husband. Can. No, I mean, I work <laughs> with my husband and I thought about it because you guys work very closely together. Yeah. And I was like, ooh, I wonder how they do it. Because I don't care. I know you're a very healthy guy and smart, but you know, there's te- like- There's always tension. Stuff's happening. So I could see yeah. it like, what name did you say? Like, you know, I could see you guys at some dinner or something. I mean, I think most <laughs> of it was that I I was like, I like I like the other names we had. Like we had other names that sure. I was comfortable with and other people were like, no, you can't have that name. Like I personally really liked Moto. I thought yeah. that was a cool name. I thought that was something that would stick, but it, I was the only one on that name. So it was hard, to, you know, that I think that was like a sticking point originally, but you got to pick your battles, right? There's a lot more stuff we have need to Amen. spend our time doing than fighting over names. Ultimately, you, you always figure it out if you take time and you're patient with the process. And we're sitting at dinner at a Thai restaurant in Pittsburgh, one of our favorite places, and with a, our, one of our good friends, uh, Alex, who was our roommate at the time, very creative guy, but not in the space at all that we were working in. And... We were just like, hey, let's, you know, let's let's just like have a bottle of wine, eat some Thai food, and let's just figure, let's just come up with some names, just shoot it out there, just put it out into the into the into the ether, see what see what comes up. And we like went through hundreds of names at this dinner. And the very last one 
out of the blue, Al's just sitting there. He's like, what about Apollo? And we were like, hmm, what about Apollo? And so we started thinking about it. We went and looked it up. And Apollo is, it's not like patentable or trademarkable because there's so many different companies right, and applications and, there, and theaters and things that use that sure. name. But we realized that we could do Apollo neuroscience or something like that, where it's like Apollo plus something else. And so that made it in the realm of usability. But what was interesting was that that when you look up the origins of that name, mm-hmm. you know, I mentioned earlier that the temple of Apollo at Delphi was worshiping Apollo, the, the god. Apollo, the god, was the god that gave the gift of medicine and the gift of music to humanity. Mm-hmm. What is the technology? Mm-hmm. It's wearable music that heals your body by calming your nervous system and, and providing balance. What is the caduceus? You know, the staff is two snakes. It's balance around the nervous system and the two halves of the nervous system, the snakes, mm-hmm. the two halves, the balance is the middle. That's really interesting. And so as we started to dive deeper into the meaning- It got closer to even what you wanted. It was way closer than we ever thought yeah. it, we would find. Um, and it just, we started, and we started to think about it. And then I, and then I learned about the, the, t- the temple of Apollo Delphi and what was inscribed on the top of it. Of course, there's like, I think there's like over 600 tenets, but of how to live a good life, but there's three that are inscribed on the top. Right. Know thyself. Surety brings ruin, nothing to excess. And know thyself really stuck with me because it was like, that sounds so simple, but and yet it is one of the most difficult things to do for all of us. It's like, what is this technology doing? Like, how does it restore balance? It reminds us that we're safe in our own bodies. It reminds us that we can self-inquire because if we feel safe in our own bodies, then we can dive in. And if we can dive in, we can get to know ourselves. And so all of that just kind of came together and that became the name. Are these available only online or can we get them at any, where, where are they? So they're available on our website at mm-hmm. apolloneuro.com, mm-hmm. A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com. For fun, you can go to wearablehugs.com also because I saved that <laughs> oh, domain. They gave that to you just as like a, a nod to you? No, I just, I, I saved it because I love, oh, my team gave it to me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, here, yeah. you can have that. For yeah, you own. can have that one. Yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite. So, um, and then you could also come come meet us at events. You know, we're at a whole bunch of psychedelic uh, medicine events. So websites, tell me all the places people can find you and everything you're Oh, to doing. find me personally? Yeah. So my personal website is drdave.io. Mm-hmm. Um, you could find my clinical work there and, and also lots more about me and the work we're doing. Then we talked about Apollo website. I also have a podcast that just mm-hmm. came out. I hate to think of it as a podcast because it's more of a radio show that we record live because I love live radio and the opportunity to actually interact with people live. Yeah. And so we record it live on Clubhouse almost every Thursday. If you follow me on Clubhouse at Dr. Dave Rabin, you can join our conversations with leading experts in the psychedelic field. And that show is called The Psychedelic Report which is your single source of truth for the psychedelic news, which we haven't had. Amazing. Because everybody's just talking different stuff, but we yeah. actually came together and said, we're going to, oh, right. you know, we're just produce something that gives people the actual information that we actually know to be evidence-based and true about the psychedelic space. So that there's one place people can go for that. So that's been a really fun project. Mm-hmm. And, and I also work for a, a nonprofit that uh, I direct called the Board of Medicine, which is really focused on, mm-hmm. uh, it's a nonprofit medical board of world-renowned experts that is really focused on trying to drive home a respectful use of medicine. 
And that's something that I think our society has really struggled with, even in the medical community, where we overprescribe opioids and benzodiazepines and these, and a lot of SSRIs and a lot of drugs that actually cause harm long term without kind of thinking yeah. and remembering that to first do no harm to our yeah. to our clients. And so the boardofmedicine.org is where you can find information about that, which is really catered to clinicians and people in the medical space or who want to get into the medical space and get access to trainings for evidence-based trainings for complementary and alternative medicines from cannabis to psychedelics to supplements to natural treatments that help and technology as well. So last few questions, just off the top of your head, if you said the most valuable thing you learned going through being the, an entrepreneur, because mm -hmm. most of us are not going to be scientists, mm -hmm. but a lot of people are, you know, especially in this day and age, you kind of have to do it yourself. Was mm -hmm. there something that really showed up for you that really was an important lesson. Oh, there's so many lessons. Yeah. Is it just about how we navigate failure? That's a really good one. What about the idea the, of is, do I have a good idea? That Yeah, testing good ideas, right? Like go and to all the naysayers and see, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think one of the things that I learned in particular was, I don't know how many people know this, but in the science world, the medical world, when we take technology from the lab to the community, Bench to bedside on average, if you include drugs and technology, it's like 17 years, 17 years to get our best stuff from the lab into the community. Yeah. That's way, way, way too long. Yeah. We need it now. And we need these developments that are working. We need them now. And so Catherine, my wife, who's in you know emerging technology, she has an emerging technology background. And I actually learned a tremendous amount from her, which is, you know, number one, surround yourself with the best people who know more than you, right? Do not settle. Do not settle for the people that you surround yourself by. Like literally, these are the people who are going to, who are going to steer your future. Mm -hmm. So make sure those people you really can look up to and trust uh, as mentors effectively. And that it's not scary to have those people know more than you about certain things because we can't can't know everything. We right. just can't. Yeah. And so we need to build those trusting relationships and step out of our comfort zone a little bit to do that. And then, you know, Catherine, Catherine's input into the science and the business part was really helpful because there's, in science, we think, oh, let's just test it in the lab. And if we test in the lab and it works, it's going to work in the real world and people right. are going to use it. That is a fallacy. Yeah, That is very, very much not true. There are thousands of discoveries. You learned quite a lot by doing yeah. it, by getting it out there. Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah we, because we did real world, real world testing after the lab yeah. in thousands of people. And we, that's what we're- I, I even gonna, like that you partnered with Aura on that. I saw that, that they were open and you got to track and do some things around um, heart yeah. rate variability and sleep and things like that. Right. And that's what I was going to say is that's what was so cool is taking research out of the lab Again, it's stepping into your into a zone of science for scientists. It's very uncomfortable, yeah. But it widens the window of opportunity, and all of a sudden, you realize, hey, we built this technology for focus for people with PTSD, but we just gave this to three thousand people in the real world, and they're not they're using it for focus. But what are they using it for more than focus? Sleep. Yeah. And we didn't know That's that in the right. lab because we didn't originally do a sleep study. Yeah. So we learned that from our community. And then we went back and we tr we were going to do a sleep lab study, but then the pandemic hit and all the sleep labs closed right before we were about to kick off. So we just emailed all of our users and said, hey, would you be willing to share your Aura Ring data with us? And they 350 people said, absolutely, overnight. Now we have over 1,500 people. And we've shown that from tracking those people 
compared to their baseline data before they ever received an Apollo, which is roughly six months before ever receiving an Apollo, to then another year average after receiving an Apollo, Mm. we were able to get data you would have to spend millions of dollars to get in the lab. And we probably spent under 50 grand to do this study. And we got data that is realistic. It's like data that comes from real people's lives. Mm-hmm. When you go into a sleep lab, people don't realize like that's no. not the way You're you sleep at home. Your house. Yeah. You're away from your house. You're in a different bed. Different that's temperature. Way less comfortable, yeah. different temperature, and you're connected to wires. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> we don't like to sleep. That's with actually wires better. On a better this. way. Even it, they saved you a, a, you know, that actually is a better way, period. It's more authentic to measuring what their people are really going through. Right. So, yeah, so that was really helpful because we learned stuff because by opening by by stepping into our discomfort, yeah, and we and tolerating that, and just saying let's figure out what's going to happen. And again, a lot of the work we do is about learning to tolerate discomfort, not running from it, but actually stepping into it. Yeah. We learned that people actually sleep better just by adding this technology to their lives, regardless of all the other variability. Literally, just adding this to your life, no matter how much you use it people are sleeping better and it's statistically significant. But then if you use it the way we recommend, yeah. we saw that those that data goes up to like up to 30 minutes more sleep a night that's concentrated deep in REM sleep. Yeah. It's huge. That's how much you get from doing regular exercise. So why wouldn't you add something like this to And it's life? very easy. I got it in my phone. I'm not the, I mean, I, I know how to use technology, but I'm not incredibly savvy. I loaded it. It's easy. It was easy to start. It wasn't a ton of steps. Oh, I'm so glad. Very, very easy. Um, Final question. By the way, I had a, a fun conversation uh, with Amy earlier about your mom writing a book. Oh, I thought that was really cute. I was like, oh, he comes from an interesting family. <laughs> um, lessons being a partner that you didn't know before you entered into a marriage. or mm. And when I say partner, because relationships are relationships, mm. whatever title, I, I could care less. That you didn't know and now you do that have really been helpful. I'll give you one lesson and it's going to be the, it's going to sound really simple, but I can tell you my entire career has been about listening to people and that's all it's about. It's just being present and listening to people, not hearing them and waiting to to say your piece, Mm -hmm. but actually just non-judgmentally presently listening to people, making eye to eye contact, not looking at your phone, not thinking about what you're going to eat for dinner later, not any of that, just regular old human, non-judgmental listening. And that is the single biggest thing that will make a difference in any relationship you have, but especially partnership yeah. relationships. So I have one, because I'm, I'm older a constant than you. Struggle. Wait, I'm older <laughs> than you, and I'm in a longer relationship. So I'm going to add, I'm going to bolt on for okay. the listeners is there's also something called active ignoring. And I'm going to tell you what this is, okay? Because I totally agree with you on the listening. And listening, not fixing, listening, not defending, listening, not justifying, just listening. There is sometimes, too, that people, your partner might be talking about something you really don't care about at all. By the way, they do it for you, too. Yeah. And you really are listening, but you're not. You're actively you're like because sometimes it's too much input. You start right. adding like dogs and kids and everything. And so also, I want to give people the the other part of that is sometimes it's important that I had a friend who was newly married, and she's like, you know, he talks about so many things I'm not interested in. I go, yeah, and he listens to all the stuff about you that he's not interested in, but you're interested in him or you're interested in her. Right. And right. so 
I agree on the listening. And then a little bolt onto that is active ignoring. <laughs> it's like when you're a three-year-old, it can talk about this pen right. <laughs> for 45 minutes and you go, oh, wow, uh-huh, uh-huh. Cause you gotta do it, mm-hmm. but it is a funny. Uh, well, yeah, and we don't all have to, we're not all gonna be interested in the same stuff. Nope. That's just the way it is. <laughs> like we all have our own interests and passions and sometimes those were aligned <laughs> totally. and overlap really nicely yeah. and sometimes they don't. Yeah. But I can still show you that I hear and yes. see you. That's all we want. That's all we be all seen. want. And be maybe seen a little and heard. appreciation. Yeah, but that seeing and hearing is appreciation in and of itself. That's true. That's what people pay me for, believe it or not. It's really actually a little sad because it's, again, something that we can all provide to each other for free. But And and I think the the upside of it is that we can teach each other to do it if we remember that we all are born with the ability to non-judgmentally listen to each other Mm -hmm. and have empathy because there's literally a stripe in all of our brains that is just responsible for empathy. There's not a single human being on the face of the earth pretty much unless you have frontotemporal dementia that does not have that stripe. We all have it. We have the ability to non-judgmentally listen to each other. It does take a little bit of practice, but that is above and beyond probably one of the single biggest gifts that any human can give to anyone else. And it is appreciation because it's showing I value you enough to give you my presence, to yeah. give you my time. Right. And yeah. and that is, I think, one of the things if you really want to, if you really want to break it down, like what is going to save humanity? Yeah. What is going to con- it's connection by just non-judgmentally being present and listening to each other. That's what that's what acknowledges each other's humanity. Yeah. Dr. Dave Rabin, thank you for coming here for your time and for this incredible work you're doing. I think, you know, just this idea in any way that we can support our fe- our fellow humans, it's just really important and just reminding people like, you know what? It is a bumpy ride and that's totally natural and what are the tools that are out there right now to uh, help us? So, thank you for coming over. That's My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. Stay tuned for a bonus episode coming this Thursday where I go deeper on one of the topics that really resonated with me. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at Gabby Reese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.